we've been, we've been going through this series on Ephesians, and we're going to continue with that this morning. So I'm just going to jump right in. Is that okay? Jump right in. If you haven't been with us, um, here is where we have journeyed. Uh, Paul is speaking to the people of Ephesus, and he's, he's reminding them about their story, that Jesus died for them, that they now have an inheritance through him, and that he's made them one through his grace, through his sacrifice. He's made them one, pulled together both Jew and Gentile, and people of, of, every, uh, of every different gifting, all of these things. He's made them all one family. And then last week, we, we, we started unpacking some of the, uh, you know, so, some, of their, some of the therefores, right? Like if he did that, then, then therefore, we have the old self, and now we have the new self. And he says, walk in the new way of life. Walk in the new self. That means no other allegiances can compete with Jesus. That means what he says we, we model our lives after him. He's our new allegiance. So now he continues that here in chapter five. He keeps going. So here we go. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Our culture today is not fond of imitation, in fact, imitation is almost a sin to our culture because we value authenticity so much. It's like, be yourself, and that's the true, like, goodness right there. Like, to imitate is almost offensive, you know? Ooh, it, it looked like somebody else. But the New Testament doesn't seem to be all that concerned with authenticity as an ends to itself. It, it, we value authenticity, and we talk about it here all the time, as a starting place that we come to God and to one another and we're honest about where we are, we're honest about our hurts, we're honest about our sins, our shortcomings, so that we can invite Jesus and one another into those places and so we can walk together and receive healing and walk in the fullness of life, right? No, we don't believe in authenticity as an end in and of itself. So our culture doesn't really understand Imitation. It would be looked on as like, what is this? But Paul says, and the New Testament writers seem to value this a whole lot more than authenticity for his own sake. He says, imitate Jesus. Walk like he walks. Walk in love. So what does it actually mean to love? Well, most of you guys know that Greek is a little different than English. In English, we use love for everything. I personally love apple fritters. They're better than bear claws. I don't care what you say, right? I, I also love the Dallas Cowboys. Come on. Come at me, bro, as they would say, as the kids say, right? So we, we love all kinds of things. We love our friends. We, we love our, our, you know, our favorite TV shows. In Greek, it, we get a little more specific. In Greek, we have different kinds of love. For example, we have eros, which is sexual romantic love, right? We have phileo, which is uh, friendship and brotherly love. And we have this, agape, the love of God. And this is the term Paul is using here. When he says walk in love, he's saying walk in the love of God. Walk in agape. This has little to do with feeling. Agape. In fact, you can agape a person and be really irritated with them. You, 
you could even agape a person and not really particularly like them that much. Because agape isn't about the way that you feel. Agape is about a choice to, to, to go after the highest good for a person, to promote their good, right? That's what agape is all about. And so uh, uh, Paul says, uh, here's how we should walk in, in agape. We do what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Well, we know what Jesus did. He gave himself up for us. He sacrificed for our good, for our salvation. Now, were there feelings involved in this act of love? Well, certainly. We, we see all throughout the Gospels how Jesus was time and again moved with compassion. I think he really loved and, and, and he probably even liked his disciples most of the time, although some of them didn't make it easy. But, but he, we also know he experienced some other kinds of feelings. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Apparently, I said Eden first service. That's not good. In Garden of Gethsemane, when he was feeling all kinds of emotions, he's feeling like, Lord, if there's any other way, get me out of this, right? So the thing he wanted to do in that moment conflicted with what love would say. And so he's feeling a thing, and he even prays that out, which is a model for us when we're feeling something, good or bad, to bring it to the Father, right? He prays that out, and then he chooses to love anyway. Do you see that? Sometimes emotions and love are, don't line up at all. He didn't choose to follow his heart in that moment. He hadn't watched enough Disney movies to know that's what he's supposed to do. He didn't follow his heart, right? He instead chose to sacrifice. He chose to love. He even chose to love the soldiers who were killing him. Paul says to love like Jesus, to love like this in our relationships. That's a tall order, I know. What he's saying is to make an unselfish commitment to people to lay our lives down for others the way that Jesus did, to not seek our own. Love doesn't seek its own, remember? It seeks to promote others. So now he's going to tell us how, and he's going to start with sexual relationships, okay? Here he jumps in, chapter, or, uh, verse 3. But sexual immorality and all, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetousness, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In the past couple of years, there's been a shift in the way our culture looks at, at sexuality. Um, in previous decades, um, the, the way that we've all, sort of like, as, as like a, 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 the greater American culture, um, We've sort of bought into the, the idea of moral relativism, right? Like, do what you do, and I do what I do, and you can't tell me there's anything wrong or right, and we'll just go and do that. So that's been sort of the ideal. But the last couple of years, that's fallen apart, and the reason that's fallen apart is because all of the sexual misdeeds that have come to light, particularly the past two years, right? We've seen this all over the place. We've seen it in government. We've seen it in entertainment. We've seen it in the church. We've seen all of these things. And what that's led people to do is sort of reevaluate. Okay, wait a minute. 
maybe you living your truth and me living my truth, that's not such a good idea. Like maybe there should be a baseline anyway of something we all follow. And so people have embraced uh, a baseline. And this is what our culture has sort of decided. That as long as there is consent, then anything goes as far as sexuality, as long as there's consent, okay? Now, this is a mixed bag. I happen to think this is a positive development because that's actually an important thing. Like, we forget just how, how, how serious it is even in the Old Testament. A rape is a, a, a capital offense. Like, this is, it is a very, very serious thing that people don't take seriously enough. So consent is hugely important. The issue for me is that it doesn't go nearly far enough. That's not enough to build a whole sexual ethic on. Well, the Apostle Paul does not say avoid sexual immorality unless there's consent. Like, that's that's not what, what he says. He says to avoid sexual immorality. He says to flee from it. Now, what does it mean? The, the Greek term sexual immorality is porneo, which of course is where we get the, the word pornography, okay? And it's, it's, it's like sexual lawlessness. And it's referring back to uh, uh, Levitic, the chapter in Leviticus that's outlining um, guidelines for sexuality. And anything, it's, it, there's a laundry list of things that's telling this is what's, this is what's lawful. And, and sexual immorality, when, when you boil it down there and, and throughout scripture, it's this. It's, it's any sexual relationship that is outside the covenant of a marriage with a husband and wife. That's what it is, okay? By definition. Now, this, of course, is a highly unpopular idea in our culture today. I understand. It, it truly is. And, and it's easy to look and go, okay, well, Old Testament, that's a pretty Old Testament thing, right? And we almost use Old Testament as an adjective nowadays. <laughs> like, well, that's a pretty Old Testament look on your face. You've got judgy McJudgy pants. That was for you, sir. <laughs> Doesn't that... <laughs> right? Here's the thing, though. Jesus Christ actually raised the bar. He didn't lower it. He said, not only is that sexual immorality, those things, but if you lust, that's also sexual immorality. He puts it on par with adultery. In other words, it's not just what you do with your body, it's what you do even with your mind and your heart that is, is so important to God and so important to Jesus. And he's, he's given an alternative. He's, he's saying, instead of those things, walk in love. This whole chapter is about walking in love. Love like Jesus' love. Spoiler alert to our culture. Love is not the same thing as sex. It's bigger. It's fuller. Love is supposed to be something. Uh, that we're, it, it's something we're supposed to do with our whole Lives, not with our bodies only. The, the mingling of bodies is meant to be not a transactional experience like something we buy or trade. Rather, it's meant to be self-donation. Something we honor a person with in the context of a lifelong commitment to love a whole person. But when we give in to sexual immorality, we're dishonoring the other person by taking their body but not giving our whole selves to them. Paul says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Let no one deceive you with empty words. 
Ignore the culture that says this isn't a big deal because he's saying this actually is. Uh, Tim Keller, pastor over at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, he said this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. Stay with me on this. This is a, a, a longer quote. The biblical view implies that sex outside of marriage is not just morally wrong, but also personally harmful. If sex is designed to be part uh, of making a covenant and experiencing that covenant's renewal, then we should think of sex as an emotional commitment apparatus. Pause there for just a second. Just a few minutes ago, Pastor Joshua came up here and he had a little juice cup and he had a little cracker. And all of us together, we, we, we prayed and we remembered Jesus Christ and, 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 and we took communion. And every time we take communion, that is sort of, it's like a renewal of the new covenant that Jesus made. And every time we do it, it's like we meet Jesus all over again. We're reenacting that covenant that Jesus made that he gave to us with, with his own blood. So every, guess what? Every week here, you get to meet Jesus over again. Isn't that cool? He's saying sex is designed to be the same thing. It's designed to be not only the consummation of a marriage covenant, but, but it, it's, it's, it's like the covenant's renewal. And it's reenacting the covenant over and over again. That's what he's saying. He continues. If sex is a method that God invented to, to do whole life entrustment and self-giving, it should not surprise us that sex makes us feel deeply connected to the other person, even when used wrongly. Unless you deliberately disable it, or through practice you numb the original impulse, sex makes you feel personally interwoven and joined to another human being as you are literally physically joined. In the midst of sexual passion, you naturally want to say extravagant things such as, I'll always love you. Even if you're not legally married, you may find yourself quickly feeling marriage-like ties, feeling the other person has obligations to you. But that other person has no legal, social, or moral responsibility to even call you back in the morning. This incongruity leads to jealousy and hurt feelings and obsessiveness if two people are having sex but not married. It makes breaking up vastly harder than it should be. It leads many people to stay trapped in relationships that are not good because of a feeling of having somehow connected themselves. Therefore, if you have sex outside of marriage, you will have to steel yourself against sex's power to soften your heart toward another person and make you more trusting. The problem is that eventually, sex will lose its covenant-making power for you, even if one day uh, you do get married. Ironically then, sex outside of marriage eventually works backwards, making you less able to commit and trust another person. Isn't that interesting? Sexuality outside of committed monogamous marriage, in other words, is not loving. And he says, walk in love. So Paul says, don't do it. Because we have the new self now. We put off the old self, and we put on the new self, which doesn't seek its own. The new self, which doesn't seek uh, selfishness, but it lays selfishness down and embraces love, which is promoting the highest good for another person. Are you with me? Paul continues, therefore, do not become or partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 
Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Maybe we used to live by the world's standards. That was the old self. We walk in the light now, and we live to please God. We were asleep, he says, but now we're awake. And listen, this is one of the reasons this is so hard, is I know so many of us have baggage in this area. So many of us have fallen short in this area. And the sad thing is, is sometimes the church has taken sexual sin and it's like raised it like, oh, like the holy grail of badness. You know, like you can talk to like, you like sit and talk to people about their, their history and you like talk to some like guys like, so what, what about you? Well, uh, I used to have a real rage problem. Like really? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Beat up 15 people. Almost killed some people. Might have killed some people. Whoa, that's pretty interesting. But I met Jesus. Hey, praise God. That's awesome. What about you? Well, I committed adultery. <gasps> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, or like I had all kinds of sexual partners. <gasps> yeah. And it's like, why? What is this? You guys, there is grace for you if you have fallen sexually. There is so much grace. And I'm so sorry that it's been held up as this thing that's like unredeemable or makes you dirty forever. That is nonsense. Because Jesus Christ came to die for you and to give you a new identity. Do you hear me? There is grace for you. But if you stay in your sin, there's no grace for staying there. Do you hear what I'm saying? There's grace to turn and come back to Jesus. But he died to save us from those things that destroy us. So how can you be saved from the things that destroy you if you remain in the things that are destroying you? In what way is that any sort of rescue? And it's not because this is extra dirty. It's simply this. We're part of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is not a democracy. I don't vote. I don't have a vote in the kingdom of God because it's a kingdom. Because the king is Jesus. And that's what we give ourselves to. The full allegiance of not just a squishy guy who really likes you and has a beard. We give full allegiance to a king who died for you, who laid his life down to renew you, to give you eternal life, and to, and to open up a whole new kingdom for everyone where he is king. I'm so thankful for the loving and beautiful limits that the Lord set for us. Because he's defined what love is and says, this is the way, walk ye in it. He continues, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I love that. Do not be drunk with wine. Don't seek happiness through a loss of control. It's such an interesting uh, 
example here to throw in, and I, and I think it's really relevant no matter what your particular brand of temptation is, because people get drunk for lots and lots of reasons. People become alcohol, alcoholics for all kinds of reasons, right? Sometimes there's hurt that's so big and so painful that they, they w- want to go after anything that will numb that hurt. Sometimes uh, uh, it's just a thing they started doing when they were younger, and it's habit, and they don't know how to run away from it. They don't know how to get, get past it. That draw to be drunk with wine is just very strong. And then sometimes, maybe that hasn't even happened, maybe that, that desire has been there as long as you can remember. And this kind of thing happens often, particularly in families of alcoholics, that their children uh, find themselves with that same sort of bend and desire. And they can't even explain it. Is it nature and nurture? Probably both, right? Your old genetic mix now, you find yourself like, that would be really easy to go that direction. Do you guys know that every single one of us in all different areas have a bend? Every single one of us have a leaning that you can't explain. Every single one of us have desires. You have good and beautiful desires, but you also, because we live in a fallen world, have desires that are not beautiful. And and in all of these things, Jesus says, hey, guess what? There's a better way. And that better way is to walk in love. That means you, you, you do what Jesus did. You take the desires you have and you put them in obedience to the Father. That means you take, even if, even if you have a longing and a desire to walk outside that thing, you put that thing up because love is not selfish. And you give that thing to him and instead, you walk in love. You choose the highest good for other people. And in this case, I love that he's talking about like, thanksgiving in these things, uh, um, being uh, uh, the alternative even to drunkenness. Because so often, uh, um, when, you know, when, when you can fall into sadness, or you fall into those places where it'd be easy to try to outrun your sadness through alcohol, so many of those times is loneliness even. So here he's saying, come together, sing songs of praise, just like we're doing this morning, you guys right now are fulfilling this. Come together, worship God, be thankful to look for ways that we can thank Jesus. That's a powerful tool of spiritual warfare. Did you know that? To be, when you feel stuck in that place, whatever, you, whatever the thing you want to run to is, it might not be alcohol at all. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's pornography. Whatever it is, whatever that bend is that you have, he says there's a better way. He says, come to Jesus, give it to Jesus, and find ways to be thankful. Look for the things he has done in your life and embrace that joy. Thank you, Lord, for beauty. Thank you for laughter. Thank you for music. Thank you for art. Thank you, Lord, for the people in my life that you've put there. Thank you for saving me. It's a beautiful thing. And finally, he says in the end, submit to one another out of reverence of Christ. Submit to one another. Now here we are as the recipients, the new recipients of this letter. He says, submit to one another. Raise your hand if he's talking to you. Everyone raise your hand because he's talking to you. Well, good job, good job. I didn't even have to spur that on. Good job. Submit to one another. Submit to one another. He's talking to all of us, okay? Now, Keep all of this in context, okay? He's saying there. Now he jumps in here. 
Wives, submit to your husbands, right? He's just told us all to submit to one another. So is it wives? Yes, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, uh, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now stay with me, okay? Stay with me. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Uh, loves his wife, loves himself, excuse me. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let his wife see that she respects her husband. In other words, husbands, make your marriage into a metaphor. Husbands, make your marriage look like this. Love your wife like Jesus loves the church. What does that mean? That means model your love after Jesus. This is what he did. He lays his life down and he sacrifices. This is what the entire passage is about. It means lay down your desires, lay down, your, uh, lay your own life down so that someone else, namely your wife, can thrive. You see, this is exactly where we started, isn't it? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is where we started. You see, here's what, here's the thing. In the ancient world, women were treated like proper, property. They were considered less than. Husbands could do whatever they wanted. The husband was the lord of the manor. He was the king of the castle. He could be bossy and lazy and cruel, and he could get his way in everything. He could even cheat on her, and it wasn't an issue because nudge, nudge, wink, wink, boys will be boys, right? Whereas the wife was, if the wife was unfaithful, she could be turned out completely, certainly called a whore, certainly pushed out of accepted society. That was the lot of ancient women, of ancient wives in history, but Paul says no. He says, no. Husbands, he says, you have a responsibility to lay your life down for your wife. To sacrifice for your wife. Husbands, you have a responsibility to serve your wife like Jesus serves the church. Now, this was a radical departure from the way things worked in the Roman Empire. Radical. It, uh, uh, and the way they saw marriage. The, the New Testament elevated women to the status of real people with real value, not, not, not the second-class little servants in the household. And they sent shockwaves throughout the empire, and we're still feeling them today. Despite all of this, though, many men, many men in the church have somehow, somehow still seen this as license for being complete jerks. Here's how. They saw the word submit and they clutched onto it and they ran with it 
And they thought that that word gave them the right to rule their, their wives. They made their marriages into cute little monarchies. They were the king, and the wife was maybe a queen, maybe more like a princess, maybe a lady. She cooked, she cleaned, she decorated, and she looked pretty for him. Well, he did whatever he wanted, and she got him a beer. And he thought that this was sanctioned by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. There are three reasons for this that he thought this way, I think, at least three that I can think of. The first is sexism. <laughs> if you simply believe that women are there to serve men, well, that's a problem with your mindset. That's called sexism, it's, and it's, it's wrong. The second is selfishness. You might put those together, but if you really want to be in a, I mean, who doesn't want to be king of a castle, right? I want to get married. I want my wife to do whatever I want her to do. That sounds pretty good. Let me find theological backing for that. (laughs) Some have done that. That's just selfish. Simply selfish. The third is this. Really bad biblical interpretation. That's how he came to this. Not Not just sexism, not only selfishness, but bad interpretation. You see, if you come to that, if, if you seize on to that and like, I'm going to be a jerk and I'm going to run my family the way I want to, blah, 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 then you have to completely put blinders on and forget that Paul was telling him, the husband, to submit to his wife as well. Do you see this? All of this is in the context of mutual submission and mutual love. And to come to some sort of triumphalistic, male chauvinistic like perspective on marriage, you have to completely bury this. Paul is telling you, submit to one another. So if you're an alpha male who wants to be the big boss of your house and treat your li- wife like a second-class citizen, this verse gives you no cover for that. Do you hear me? Paul does not say that, and it gives you no cover for that. You are required to submit to your wife. And what's more, you're supposed to love your wife as much as Jesus loves the church in that same way. So let me tell you this. Maybe you have a checkered past in this area. Maybe you have not treated your wife properly. Maybe you have not laid your life down for her. Maybe you have expected that she be your servant, which is not right. I got good news for you. There is grace for you. See, that's sin. That's sin. And we can turn away from that and come to Jesus and come to your wife and say, I'm so sorry and repent and turn and come. And and there's grace for you. There's grace for you in whatever areas you've gone to selfishness and you've chosen selfishness because of that pull and that bent instead of love. There's grace for you. But See, sometimes people hear grace and love because they like squishy, nice, smiley Jesus. And so they think that grace and love means you just like, ah, it's so great. We can just sort of sink down into a hot tub and like, ah, grace. I don't have to do anything whatsoever. And I want to tell you, that's not the case. If you're sinking down in that hot tub of sin and calling that grace, you're totally missing it. That means grace is this. Get out of the hot tub. Get out. 
out. If, if you're in sin, the whole point is to, to get up and get out of that thing. We have towels. In fact, we do. We have a bunch of towels in the back. We would, we'd be happy to give you a towel. That's <laughs> the whole concept of baptism. Like, die, get out of your sin. You, you come back, right? We'll wrap you up in a towel and, and, and come back to Jesus. There is grace for you, no matter what it is that you've done. But we are called to love one another. And in marriage, we are called to love and submit to one another. These two instructions to husbands and wives do not equal wives, do whatever your husband says. Uh, And husbands, remember to give your wife a smooch now and again. That's not what this says. I would say it's something more like this. Here's the Hague translation. Husbands, lay your life down for your wife. And wives, let your husband lay his life down for you. Your marriage is to be a metaphor of how much Jesus loves the church. So husbands, it's on us here. He's saying, you lay your life down. You let her thrive. You promote her. You make sure she knows how loved she is. This, if you do this, this will be a beautiful picture of how much Jesus loves the church. It'll point right to that. But if you don't and are expecting her, she just won't submit. You know, you don't even understand the passage then. Stop. Start by loving her. And then, and then you can work this. And why, why is it? Why is it that if, if, he, if he gives the general command to love and, and submit, why does he then give these specific instructions um, after that? Well, maybe it's because he kind of made us and he knows the way we're designed, you know? Like... He knows a husband is needy. Husbands, you're needy. (laughs) A husband needs the security of his wife's respect. And a wife, you know what a wife needs? A wife needs to know that her husband both nurtures her and needs her. She needs to know she's valued and she has an important role to play. Not like a figurehead role to like hang cute pictures and, 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 and make sure the, you know, dinner's on when he comes home. It's not that. It's, it's not that. She needs to know she's valued as a whole person. See, just like in the whole sexual situation. That love loves the whole person. She needs to know that. So, what does this all come back to? Simply this. Walk in love. Walk in love. Love means doing what Jesus did. It means pushing back our own agendas. It, re- it means promoting the highest good for one another, whether we're talking about romantic relationships, whether we're talking about family relationships, whether we're talking about friendships. It means we put aside the selfish things that we desire, and instead we think, what is it that is best for you, and how can I lift you up? You guys, that's what Jesus did for each and every one of us, and that's what he calls us to. Can you receive that? Stand together. Prayer servant team is coming forward.